putting yourself in a position where you're really excited about the thing that you're doing might be a way to make yourself more successful. The value of the brand is nowhere near the value of referenceability. Being one mutual connection removed from great investors, like that's the valuable part. To me, what this is about is really just running business as usual better. But that's not the value that people want to get out of data. And the reason that these companies that are really successful build big teams is they know that there's something more to it than business as usual. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I sit down with Derek Steer, founder and CEO of Mode, a data analytics and business intelligence tool. We dig into Derek's background as a data scientist and uncover the origins of Mode to build a data science tool for and by data scientists. We spent a lot of time discussing how enterprise software companies can use data to drive their businesses. We discuss how data can be used in the development of product assortment, particularly in regards to freemium offerings and feature selection. We then explore data-driven examples for user onboarding and engagement with an emphasis on explaining a framework that can be used as a starting point for your own data analysis. We wrap up the conversation with a discussion of mode security practices and weigh the costs and benefits of delivering an on-prem version. Hope you enjoy the show. All right, Derek, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Cool. So let's uh, let's just dive into your background. Can you tell us a little bit about you know kind of how you got to to starting mode. Sure. It goes all the way back to high school, honestly, where I took my first economics class. I had just this fantastic teacher. I grew up in San Francisco. I went to Lowell High School, and there was this great teacher there who was working on the AP Econ tests. Like producing the tests. Yeah, he was like a producer of the tests. And oh, cool. he, you know, he was a well-known teacher, and he was just spectacular, and and, uh, and really nudged me in that direction. And so I got to college. I studied economics, and then I went to my first job where I wanted to actually apply that understanding of economics that I had learned. So I went to this really niche consulting firm where I did analysis of demand in like antitrust cases and big mergers. So sometimes worked on behalf of the government, sometimes on behalf of big companies to try to understand whether some big merger or antitrust action or allegation was going to have a negative effect on consumers. Hmm. Um, and, and ironically, that was the hardest math that I ever did. We were building advanced statistical models to understand you know, the, the impact of whatever was going to happen on pricing for consumers. From there, you know, kind of like any consulting job, after a couple of years, it became rote and decided I was ready for something new, ended up going to Facebook. So one of the folks I really looked up to from that consulting firm left, took a job as, uh, as an analyst at Facebook on the monetization analytics team and said, Derek, you got to come over here. And this is like 2007 or something, 8, 9? Yeah, this is like 2010 okay. or so. 
And at the time, just to put things in perspective, Facebook, you know, hadn't beaten MySpace, hadn't clearly established itself. I mean, while I was at Facebook, Google Plus launched. Oh wow! So yeah, so that's like the the time frame we're talking about here. Um, the Facebook love, killer, Google Plus. Google Plus, yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, people at Facebook took it very seriously. I went there as a contractor, actually. So I had this image of business school that was really drilled into me by my by my parents, mm. um, and by spending some time in this consulting firm. You know, I had this kind of traditional established path, and even though I had grown up in San Francisco, which is the land of startups. You know, people always ask me like, "Oh, well, you must have grown up and been there through the dot com boom." I didn't see any of it because I was a kid. You know, I I wasn't actually involved, so I had this like real kind of traditional path drilled into me, and that's what I thought I was on. And so I ended up joining Facebook just very briefly as a contractor. And within my first month, I asked my boss there to write a, a recommendation for business school for me. Oh, funny. Yeah. Isn't it uh, that I, you know, I, I got there and right away I was like, hey, you know, this is great, but like, you know, we talked about this. I'm gonna leave here and like the fastest six growing company, you know, that's like about like gonna IPO sometime soon, and you're like, I need to leave and go to business school. Yeah, that's correct. That's exactly how I thought about it. And what's really even funnier is that, just to be honest, I was not particularly committed to that job mm. in any way. I didn't even think that I was gonna work in tech. Oh, I thought I thought this was like a fun stop off that to me was interesting because I liked Facebook the product, I, and I was like a real user of it. But at least when I joined Facebook there, I was not really thinking about it as a long term thing. I thought I was going to go back to consulting after business school. So I applied to all these business schools, not a ton of them, but a few good business schools. Got waitlisted or didn't get in to any of the ones that I wanted to get into, and started reevaluating my options and thinking like, okay, well. You know, actually, now that I've been at this place for a few months, kind of seeing how things operate, this is way better than consulting. Like, I don't know why I would want to go back there, mm. where previously I didn't think of myself as as going into technology at all. And this is a, really a trend for me, as I, I've been very lucky in that I've had good opportunities presented to me, and I haven't been afraid to go and take them. And in general, has worked out. Probably I missed some things along the way too, but a lot of my career progression has been happenstance. Where I just got really excited about something, and I think this is this. There is maybe something to be learned from this that, like, putting yourself in a position where you're really excited about the thing that you're doing, might be a way to make yourself more successful. You know, people always project stuff back on their history, right? There's a lot of revisionist history, so so maybe that's what I'm doing here. But regardless, there's no way I could have at that time mapped out my pathway to becoming a CEO. That's was certainly not on my mind at all. And if you had told me at that time that I was going to become a CEO of a tech company, hmm. I would have laughed in your face. Funny. Okay, so then you you left Facebook at some point, and you is that when you went to Yammer, or what was next? Yeah, so you know, about the time I started hearing back from business schools, I was evaluating all of my options, and I thought, you know, I could try to stay at Facebook and become a full time employee and take on some bigger role there. I could go somewhere else. I could wait around and try business school again. Like there were, you know, I was really searching for something, and I ended up applying to Yammer largely because. At Facebook at the time, all communications happened through Outlook. And I was there because I loved Facebook the product, but even like working there, when I spent time on Facebook, it felt like I wasn't doing my job. And what I wanted was, I spend all this time doing my job, Facebook is a great communication tool, I want to use Facebook to do my job. And that's what Yammer was. Mm. So I found it exactly in that way. I like Googled Facebook for work, found Yammer, Applied. Oh, funny. Yeah, I know. It just totally out of the blue. And I think that's the only job that I've just applied to cold without like knowing anyone or getting connected through a career center or anything. Sure. You know, I, I applied just out of nowhere. And at the time, you know, it was especially 
you need to see a Facebook on someone's resume. Yeah, right. So I went in and and I met the head of the team, Pete Fishman, who because most people weren't leaving Facebook at that point. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't. I mean, people were just going there. Right. It was like sucking. It was like a, a you know everyone was coming in and no one was leaving. So yeah, to, to leave was somewhat unique. Yeah, they may have just interviewed me just to to see what that was even about. You Funny. know, just just for their morbid curiosity. <laughs> but I went in and I and I met I met the head of the team there and just like. We clicked immediately. The head of the data science team or the head of the product team? Who were you interviewing with? Uh, it was called the analytics team. Okay. The guy's name is Pete Fishman. He's gone on to take a number of roles right now. He's at uh, Ease, the oh sure cannabis yeah. company. Yeah. But he, he's gone on to do a bunch of, of other interesting stuff. But what I saw in him was just great mentorship and great understanding of how companies can drive themselves forward through data. Okay, and so you got the job at, at Yammer. And what was that role and like what were you doing? So my title was quantitative product analyst, which is like about as narrow of a title as you can get. And in particular, it was focused on product. Although when I got there, the role I had come from at Facebook, I was working on monetization, and so I do something about ads. Mm-hmm. Right? I was doing all ad pricing stuff. Hmm. Got to Facebook and pretty quickly realized, hey, this whole team is full of like quantitative product analysts, and the business side of the house is not getting a lot of love. And that's the thing that I know a little bit about. Maybe I can help. So I pretty quickly got to work helping out the customer success team and the sales team, marketing, bits and pieces for anyone who needed something there. Okay, so you kind of were starting to do this job, you're supposed to do this job around like helping people in the product organization understand how what was being utilized and how to improve it. And then you sort of saw this other opportunity to apply data to more, more of the business problems. Yeah, this happened very quickly in my tenure at Yammer. Maybe within the first month or so, I got back to my boss and said, "Yeah, it seems like there's some smart people handling this product stuff, but no one is really helping the rest of the company. Mm. I can go do that." And he said to me, "Okay, but like don't screw it up." And gave me a pretty long leash. And I'm I'm really grateful for that, and it turned into Quite a bit. I ended up doing stuff that traditionally falls into sales ops. Um, once the company was later acquired by Microsoft, I ended up leading the rollout of a marketing automation software, which is in many ways a data problem. Hmm. Like, there's so much that I got to do and see because I was sort of allowed to be the first data person to touch any of those departments. And did you work kind of closely with some of the senior leadership at Yammer while you were doing that? Yeah, I did. Um, and actually, so Mode Series C was led by Valor. And the partner at Valor who led it, David Obrand, was the chief customer officer at Yammer back in the day. So he came in reasonably well into my tenure at Yammer, shortly before the company was acquired, mm-hmm. to help scale it up. His background was at Salesforce. He was he was a fantastic enterprise salesperson and sales leader. So when he came in, I got to work with him really closely on building the system that Yammer was going to use to scale up. And now you look five years and change later. He's leading the round in mode yeah. as an investor at this growth equity firm. It's funny how those things work out, right? It's yeah, not exactly a coincidence, you know. In my opinion, it's sort of like I think about enterprise software, particularly as this. It's sort of a small ecosystem at some point, right? And, and once you get involved in it, there's a lot of incentives to continuously be a good actor, right? And to like, you know, take care of your customers and the people you work with because. There's a strong likelihood that you'll want to work together later on. There'll be opportunity to do so later on. So, and this is a great example. You, I'm sure he loved working with you at, at Yammer, and so when the opportunity arose to work with you when you, as part of Mode, 
I'm sure you jumped on it. Yeah. It highlights something that I learned around the time that I started mode, or really realized around the time that I started mode. I used to have this notion that working at a good, quote unquote, good company was useful for a person so that it was like a stamp of approval, you know, mm. like getting a degree from Stanford or Harvard. I don't have a Stanford or Harvard degree. I went to Occidental College, which is a great school where I learned a lot and had a great time, but it's not seen in the same way. And for a long time, felt like I needed some kind of stamp on my resume. The consulting firm I worked at was like tops in the industry in which I worked, but it was a really narrow field that most people didn't know, and so it wasn't helping me with the rest of my career. When I went out to start Moat, it became really clear that the value of the brand is nowhere near the value of referenceability. Especially if you're going to start a company, being you know one mutual connection removed from great investors, or even being a first-degree connection with great investors where they know who you are, have seen you do quality work, believe in you as a leader or analyst or whatever it is that you do, like that's the valuable part. Yeah, I get that, right? Like the idea that you can impress some folks and, and create a good impression and then that later on is something that you can leverage either through a second party reference or they just they want to work with you again. So okay, so I mean, what are the things like some of the core things you learned while at Yammer? I mean, you were this how long were you there and what was the I mean, so Yammer, right? Like it was pretty high flying startup. I think it was acquired for over a billion. That's right. Yeah, Microsoft bought Yammer for 1.2 billion in I I want to say 2012. Yeah, pretty fast. The company was only a couple of years old at that point. 4 years 4 old. or 5 years yeah. maybe? Yeah. I was there for a little over a year and a half I think at the time of the acquisition or thereabouts and then for another year following. Okay. So then is that kind of what inspired you to start Mode or how did you where does Mode come into the picture here? So there were hints about Mode from the moment I got to Facebook. I've always been interested in the meta problem, how to do the thing you're doing better, regardless of what it is that I'm doing. When I looked at the stuff that I was doing at Yammer and the stuff I was doing at Facebook, both of those companies had built internal tools to help their analytics and data science teams do their jobs. And if you were to look around at the other companies that were really well known for how they use data, at the time that was Zynga, LinkedIn, Spotify was on that list, Google, of course. Those companies had all built something internally. And at some point, you got to ask why. Tableau existed at that time. It was less mature than it is today, obviously, but it existed. And there was MicroStrategy and other sorts of alternatives for the business to understand what's happening. So I don't think we fully realized it at that, at that time. Now I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and trying to figure out why did it feel like we had to build this internally and why did it feel like we had to go out and and build mode. And the answer is that a lot of the software that folks have traditionally used to do data analysis is about making dashboards. And it's about working in a pretty simplistic way, drag and drop. You know, it's about empowering most people at the company to see a dashboard, do some basic manipulation in a drag and drop kind of manner, not have to write any code and be able to get the basic stuff. And to me what this is about is really just running business as usual better. But that's not the value that people want to get out of data. And the reason that these companies that are really successful build big teams is they know that there's something more to it than business as usual. There's some kind of insight to be unlocked that can produce a step change in the business. And the way that you do that 
is you put smart people on the problem and you get them as many cycles as possible answering different questions. By definition, you don't know where that value is going to be. Because if you did, you would already be using it, exploiting it for some kind of business benefit. So if you don't know where that value is going to be, then the best thing you can do is look as many places, be smart about those places, but look as many places as possible to try to find it. And that's really what this is. And it's, you know, mode is really optimized to do that. That's what those tools that those companies built were really for. And that's what mode is built for. But that's also just the whole premise of like great analytics or data science. That's the goal. That's what companies should be trying to do. And so that's what mode is out here evangelizing and building products for is to help those companies get as many cycles as possible answering the real meaty questions so that they can create step changes in their businesses. All right, cool. So, Sort of know this opportunity from your time at Facebook and Yammer, and you have this idea, and you've found a couple, like a couple of co-founders, and then just got the business up and running. Like, what were the sort of, you know, early days? What did it look like? So, there was a time at Yammer when I got together with Ben Stansel and Josh Ferguson, who are the two other founders of Mode, and we talked about what it would be like to bring these other products to market. And we talked about open sourcing things that we had done at Yammer and ultimately determined that we wanted to create a company around this because it's not just about a piece of software. It's a whole set of things that we can bring content. Like we have a SQL tutorial that's that's one of the most viewed SQL tutorials on the internet. Right. We wanted to be able to do stuff like that to, to help people learn and help people collaborate in the community in a way that we just wouldn't have had the resources to do if we open sourced the software. Plus, you know, open sourcing things is really, really difficult, especially at a company like Microsoft at that time. We kind of looked at it and said, this, this is going to be a challenge for us. There's probably not an appetite for the company to do this. Ah, got it. So could approach Microsoft and try to get them to open source it because you know the rest of the world needs it, but that's just going to be a lot of work, especially Microsoft, you know, seven years ago. So instead, let's like leave and start a company and kind of take the things we learned and build that as a product. Yeah, that's right. And we were startup people too, you know, like I don't but think neither we, of you none of you had started the company before, correct? Oh, that's yeah, that's right. Uh, none of us had founded a company. Yeah. Um, but we were coming from a really fast-paced environment and and it just felt like there were so many barriers to taking the thing we had already built and getting it out. Like we didn't even know how to go about navigating Microsoft to to get the okay on that. And so we said, you know what, we're just going to start from scratch. Total clean slate. We're going to leave. And the way that it happened is and I always, when I have friends, you know, I have a number of friends who now come to me and ask, you know, what's it like starting a company? Can you give me advice on this? And and what I tell all of them is, you know, just make sure that when you go do it, you can't think about anything else that you would rather do. Like for us, it was just the only thing I thought about. I woke up and it was, I want to start this company, build this product, get this out into the world. And when I went to sleep, it was, this is the only thing I want to be doing. And when I was at work, you know, I was constantly thinking about it. It was a distraction from everything else that I had to do to a point where at some point it was just, we had to do it. I, I, there, was nothing, there was nothing else that I could do except for go and work on this product. And so did you then like just start building a prototype? When did, you, when did you raise money, et cetera? It was really critical for us to create clean separation from the previous company for legal reasons. So sure. we you know, consulted with lawyers and made sure to do it in as clean a way as possible so that we weren't you know, liable to Microsoft for anything. So all three of us, Ben, Josh, and I, we had the same boss, and we went to him on one day together and said, hey, sorry, we're leaving to go do this thing. And 
I think it was a tough day for him, but also, you know, he was one of the first investors in the company when, when we went out and, and sought money. So when we left the company, after we had left to David Sachs and to Adam Pisoni, Adam uh, David was the CEO of Yammer and Adam was the CTO, and a number of the other executives and said, hey, we're taking the stuff that was really effective at Yammer and we're going to build a version of it that anyone can use and we're going to help other companies act like Yammer and be really great at uncovering those pieces of knowledge that can get their businesses to the next level, do you want to invest? And a lot of them, like I was saying about referenceability, a lot of them said, well, you did great work and I saw how effective this was. And so you know, all of our early investors in the first round were Yammer executives. Oh, interesting. And had you worked closely with like David Sachs while you were at Yammer or was he sort of off and just a degree away? I hadn't personally worked with him that closely. I was the stand-in for my boss a few times, and at that point, I was that was a scary situation for me to get called into the meeting with Sachs. Now we have a, a closer relationship. I'm I'm no longer afraid of going into a meeting <laughs> with him. But at the time, you know that was that was a big deal for me. Um, and so, you know, at some level, I was a little bit surprised that he was so excited about backing this company. But we had done good enough work that it was filtered up to him. And he understood the value of the tools internally at Yammer and said, okay, this is a thing that can be valuable for other businesses as well. So you start building, hire some folks. How much did you raise to start? 500K. Okay. And then we did more shortly after that. This is a thing that I would probably do differently. And I think the fundraising, the market is different now. Yeah, um, for sure. In part because there are so many tools readily available to help businesses bootstrap that you can get to pretty good revenue traction before raising money. But at the time, you know, all of the founders felt like we needed to pay ourselves some kind of salary, and so we raised a little bit of money. Yeah, I mean, I also think on the other side, I see a lot of rounds that come together, and people are raising three, four, or five million dollars like before there's a a team or a product or anything else. So, I honestly thought we would be able to do that, and this is this is where I think TechCrunch does a lot of companies a disservice. I don't think it's good. I think it's always good to have a little bit of pressure to be a little bit hungry. It forces you to be focused, and I think that raising money on day one, when I look back in retrospect, allowed us to be a little bit sloppy. I think also, you know, we had a, a bit of a mindset that was we built a thing that was really valuable, and we know that it's valuable, and so let's just go and rebuild that. And we could have saved ourselves some time by spending a little bit more time with customers mm. early on, understanding what other companies needed more. For most businesses, you know, very few companies start like that, where you you come off of building something and you say, "I'm going to go build that exact same thing or something very similar to it." So most folks, I think, will naturally be a little bit more in touch with their customers than Mode was in the early days. But for us, it was very much like, "Okay, we've got a set of friends who want this thing. Let's get the thing we know is valuable out to our friends, get them using it quickly, and then go from there." And I think there are just other ways we could have done it. I think having a little bit less money would have sharpened us on getting it out to a broader set of people faster, mm. getting more feedback before we build more products. Okay, but I mean, you managed to take that 500k, get some customers. Like, how many early customers? Who were you targeting? What, what did it look like at that point? We were really just targeting friends. It was, okay. you know, send a text message over to that person who we used to work with, who now works at a different company, and say, "Hey, we're building this thing that I've shown you in the past." You should use. Do it. you want it? Yeah. And the answer is yeah. And were you charging them? How, how? What was your? What was it look like then? Not at first. So we we did open beta at first. We really just wanted people to go and use it. We did have a little bit of a detour where we had this notion. You know, it was clear at that time. It had just become clear that GitHub was really taking off, 
And we had this, this idea that if we, and you can still see this in mode today too if you use the product, we wanted to provide a way for different companies or people from different companies to share ideas about how to solve common problems. So most companies care at the basic level about the same things. You care about customer retention or having repeat customers. If you're a commerce business, right? you think about it in slightly different terms, but it's a similar concept. You care about growth and engagement. I think about these things in a B2B context, and that's probably right for the audience of this podcast. But, for sure. but you can translate that pretty easily to other businesses. And a lot of these concepts, you know, you can solve them in simple ways, and then you can solve them in more difficult and sometimes more valuable ways. The reality for most startups anyway is that when you're solving a problem, you usually want to do the simple version and move on. But if there's a public place where you can go and draw upon the better versions and, and adopt them quickly, then that's great. Then you get this cyclical effect where you know, if you have a community that's building common solutions, then you get people who start building data to conform to those solutions, and that's when it really becomes hardened and becomes valuable. And you see this like uh, when I look at uh, Bootstrap, for example, and the effect that it's had on how people even think about the construction of a website mm-hmm. today. That's the kind of thing that we saw possible with solutions to common problems. And so when you go into mode today, you see the public data warehouse. And this was our vision, was that people would be able to like put dummy data out there and build Solutions to common problems like churn. Mm, interesting things that things that are more robust than just like count up all your churned customers or churned users. And ultimately, that wasn't that successful. I think, or or the understanding that I've come to have about this is that the best products in the B two B world tend to take things that are hard that people already want to do and make them easy. And there wasn't a community of people who already wanted to do this. Right? This wasn't like open source software where you had tons of people contributing to open source software but really struggling to like merge other people's changes and, and deploy them. That process was awful until GitHub came along. For Mode, if you were to look at you know, the community of open source data analysis, well, there was none really, and no one was trying to do that. And there was this big barrier of like, well, I don't want to leak a bunch of my company's proprietary data. I don't want to give away trade secrets or anything, and so I'm, I'll just not bother with that. That was kind of the attitude, and I think it still is. I'm guessing you didn't have that at, at Yammer. So that was that was sort of like an add-on. You thought, oh, this will be the thing that makes this have a network effect and makes this go viral. People will start to use this for this open data set. Yeah, and and it was I, a thing that we wanted to do because we believed in it. Right. And what I think having a little bit less money would have done for us is we would have invalidated that notion faster. Now, one good thing did come of this, which is that. This public data warehouse allowed me to upload a bunch of sample data and build a tutorial, and that tutorial now drives hundreds of thousands of unique visitors every month. This is the SQL tutorial. Yeah, it's big. It's a real brand builder for us at the very least. And again, you know, I talk about these sorts of things in business terms, but also at the end of the day, like I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of a lot of stuff that we've done at Mode, but I am especially proud of the things we do that we don't earn direct profit from that contribute back to. The analytics and data science community, and just like as a as a reference, this is basically a tutorial for how to do SQL queries, and you wrote that as part of this like open data project, but it had like this obviously huge secondary effect, which is probably through references and SEO and things where people are trying to learn SQL, like end up on your tooling, your tutorial. Is that right? Yes, the. SEO certainly drives a pretty good amount of the traffic there now, which 
was not deliberate at first, and then we made a more deliberate effort to do that later. The real purpose of it, so I had taught SQL at the consulting company where I worked, I had taught it at Yammer, I taught bits and pieces of it to people at Facebook, but not in a very official capacity. Like It was just something that I knew how to teach to people really well and had gotten to be an expert in. But particularly SQL for data analysis, and it, at that time, you know, now there's Data Camp and uh, and all of these other uh, Insight Data Science. Uh, you know, if you're coming out of academia, right? There's all of these programs now that will teach folks data analysis specific skills. But at the time, you know, SQL was the lingua franca for data analysis in technology companies, at the very least. But really, anyone who was working with tons of data that sat in a database, you were writing SQL. All of the tutorials, all of the books, everything was written for software development. So in order to actually get past the first bit of whatever your learning material was, you were creating tables, you were spinning up a database, you're doing all this stuff that for most analysts or data scientists, you don't really do. Like when I showed up on day one at Facebook or at Yammer, my job was read data from the database, write a select statement to get some data, aggregate within that, Subqueries, that kind of thing, right? Just writing the most advanced select statements to get back the information that I need. But I'm not creating stuff. I don't really care about table design, at least at first. Eventually, you come to learn that stuff. But the basics are really like let's take people who have an elementary understanding of maybe programming, maybe Excel, and let's map the concepts that they already know to just reading data and analyzing it. And that's really what SQL School is. That's the name of the tutorial. We call it SQL School. It's really just about let's map these things to the stuff that you already know, cut out all the superfluous stuff, make it fun by giving you, you know, billboard top 40 data, and off you go. It's interesting because I love that you're like separate out the DBA tasks, right? Table creation, database optimization, all this kind of stuff from the entire tutorial and just assume you have data because that's the reality for most people that's already in this format and now you need to query it and like put it together and do some joins and other things. And so like, I don't need to know how to set it all up. I just need to know how to query into it. So you created this, this great guide for that. And then, I mean, I think it's really interesting because it just, it feeds your community, it feeds your audience. These are the people that become data scientists, that become the users of your tool. You want them to be more like your whole tool is more SQL oriented than to your point than like any other data science tool out there that were drag and drop oriented. So if you can help people use the tool more, it, it's a self, you know, referencing, self-feeding loop, right? So it's like a nice virtuous cycle there. And I mean it also just shows that like you guys are experts and you understand how to do this stuff and if you can teach people then like they will probably look at your tool. Yeah, so content marketing isn't anything new. It feels somewhat solved at this point. Um, the thing that I've come to understand through this is that the best content marketing is is tools. Enterprise ready falls into this category. Sure. It's something that people can return to to continue to get value from and would recommend to somebody else. Sometimes a blog post is is like that, where you get something really valuable from it and you want to go back. Um, we strive to do that on our blog. But oftentimes I find the best things are things like this tutorial or, or Enterprise Ready. Sure. The thing that is really powerful about it is that if you are an expert in SQL, right, you're someone that everyone else looks to, those people are going to ask you how they can learn. And once it becomes clear to you that mode is the best way to learn, then you start recommending it. And this is what we see, and it's, it's part of what has been so powerful, is 
people that Mode would never come in contact with otherwise use this tutorial. Yes, that's true. But also, our existing customers use the tutorial where the analysts and data scientists at a company that currently uses Mode will tell other people, product managers, finance, operations, whoever it may be, if you want to do a little bit of work beyond what I've done, you want to take this thing I've done and modify it maybe, then you can learn some SQL, it's pretty easy, here's the tutorial. Yeah, so it's like, instead of me sitting next to your desk and telling you what to do, like I send you this tutorial, you learn it on your own time and like at your own pace, and then you're enabled. And so I, I'm not a bottleneck for you to access this data. Like here's all the stuff I was going to teach you anyway, plus more, and it's probably teaching you better than I would have taught you. So yeah, exactly. It becomes this referenced item that, and if experts are sharing it with their ecosystem, I mean, it's a testimonial to it. It's cool. Yeah, and I think it has earned a, a really good spot in the data analysis, data science communities just by being clear and by teaching to people you know, at the level that they come from instead of expecting them to know a bunch of programming syntax already. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'd love to kind of jump into some of the core things that we're, you know, I think are this audience will love, right? So obviously a very sort of B2B enterprise focused audience. And you're a data expert, right? Like you know how to pull out data. You did this at Yammer, you've helped a bunch of companies do it at Mode. Like how should you know enterprise software, B2B SaaS companies be thinking about using the data that they get? So I would start by saying that the way that most companies think about data today is in a pretty simplistic way. Like I mentioned earlier, I think companies think of data and dashboards as somewhat synonymous. Dashboards really are about running the operational aspects of your business. Like I said, or the way that I think about it is you know, better business as usual. That's valuable. You need that. Every company needs that. And the way that most companies, as they start, do that is with canned tools like a Google Analytics or a Mixpanel or Amplitude, something that you can deploy and pretty quickly get information back from. You don't have to do a bunch of turning knobs or coding or anything like that. Most companies then realize that their business is a little bit more complicated or there's some kind of nuance that they want to understand that isn't provided there. So classic example, if you have a marketplace business, then you have two different types of users. Or, um, or take Twitch, for example, uh, one of our longtime customers. Twitch has three types of constituents, I would say. Not, not necessarily users, but like people who care. There's, there's streamers, there are viewers, and then there are game developers. So it's like a three-sided marketplace. And those types of businesses, you know, they might use a product like Google Analytics or Amplitude for something, but it's not going to give the whole picture of everything. And so you want, you want something that's a little bit more customizable. And that's when you go to the world of BI. So you're creating some Bus- kind of... Business intelligence, right? So. Yes, BI, business intelligence, You know where the players historically have been folks like MicroStrategy. And now a lot of folks think of Tableau as one of the leaders here. It's products that are customizable to fit different types of use cases where you're doing some kind of underlying data transformation before it's being visualized. And it's usually places that are have a heavy focus on visualization, dashboarding, and then ease of use for non-technical end users. So that's kind of the progression that these companies go through. As I mentioned before, you know, where we see a lot of that value at mode is in digging into raw data and trying to answer really tough questions. I think this will be easier for me to talk about as we get into some specific examples for what that might look like. But 
what I would say for most companies, especially in the B2B world for how you think about data, is you should be thinking about how to advance your business first and then map data or what data you can get or what data you have to the types of business questions that you think will be most valuable for you to answer. So one of those for Mode was, how should we price? What should our business model be? And a while ago, we published a blog post about adding a freemium product. So there is a product we have called Mode Studio. It is free to use forever. We did not start with Mode Studio, but we added it several years into Mode's lifetime. We did a ton of analysis to understand, first of all, whether we should do that, and then second, how we should split the product to decide which parts of it are free and which parts are behind a paywall. That sort of thing, it ended up having exactly the desired effect that we wanted to have, which was to dramatically cut our customer acquisition costs. It had some other things that we didn't expect. It did some things, didn't do some things that we did expect, kind of typical big launch type of stuff. But we prepared for it as well as we possibly could have by understanding how users behaved around certain elements of our product. Okay, and so you used data to make this decision around how to what features to include in that freemium product, even if you should offer a freemium product. Not like what what did that look like? What were you like? What were the key insights? What were the key data points that drove that decision? So the thing that I've always remembered as one of the the cornerstones of that decision was. Well, first of all, we did use dashboards to tell us that there was some kind of problem that we wanted to solve, which is to say, hey, this is a business that we're getting ready to scale. It'd be much easier to do that if our customer acquisition costs were way lower. What are really big things we could do that would dramatically reduce that? And freemium was one of the ideas that we came up with and turned out to be a really good one. Once we started teasing apart all of the details... One of the analyses that was most critical was understanding for existing mode users, at a given company that uses mode, when do they use any specific feature? So like writing a SQL query, we determined that's a feature, okay? So writing a SQL query, what percentage of companies that end up purchasing mode write a SQL query? And at what point do they do it? Well, 100% is the answer, and really, really early. So that one's a no-brainer, that we have to include that in the free product. Right? The things that are used by everyone and immediately are sort of like necessary to even function at all. And without them, there's probably not a ton of value. And if you were to go through feature by feature and look at the ones that are all used 100% of the time, that's what you would deduce. You would say, like, oh, this is kind of the core of mode and necessary. If we're going to give people some kind of free something, then they've got to have these pieces. And then there are these other features. Um, so, a really good example is like Slack integration. Slack integration, not everyone uses it. Certainly not the thing that you do immediately, because you probably need to do some analysis before deciding that it's worth pushing analysis into Slack. So that's a thing that we can put on the other side of a paywall that if you're using the product for free, probably once you decide you need the Slack integration, you're also seeing enough value that you're willing to pay for the product. And so, I mean, like your studio version, is that just like a one-player, single-player kind of option, or is it, can you invite team members to that? So you can invite team members to it. The way that Mode works is you create an organization for your company, and then you invite people to the organization. The organization is how you manage permissions, so that you then connect the organization to one or any number of databases, and people in the organization can then query those databases, can you know, write some Python against it, or whatever it is that you want to do. But a lot of the sharing features, things like 
scheduling a report to be delivered to you every Monday. That sort of thing is in the premium version. So single-player mode is, I think, a, a reasonable way to think about it. Most companies that want to use it in a really collaborative way will pay for the premium product. Mm, okay. And so you were using data, so you had a, a paid product, and you know, maybe your entry point was like 250 a month or something before this, is that right? We've gone through a number of different pricing models. The key decisions around this, and again, this is stuff we had done a ton of analysis around as well, but I will say that that type of analysis is, is always best when married with the conversations that you have with customers, understanding why people like or don't like a particular model. There's always a problem with every pricing model, right? You're putting a gate, especially if it's metered in some way, you know, like if it's based on users, you're disincentivizing folks from adding the next user. If you if it's based on data amounts, you're disincentivizing folks from adding more data, which turns out to be a real sticking point. There's always some challenge. And, and so the, the key challenges that we faced at different points in time, I think the first one was, well, we're used to seeing people charge different amounts for a creator and a viewer, because this is what Tableau does. And as a tiny startup, you kind of just say, okay, whatever I got to do to reduce friction in the sales process, that's what I'm going to do. And in general, I think one of the goals of pricing is to reduce friction in sales processes. There are other goals as well. But you should be trying to achieve that, at least partially. As a young company, that was one of our priorities. So we did that for a little while, but we started getting this feedback that was like, oh, I've got this product manager. So in order to have that separation and still do uh, contracts of any reasonable size, we had to charge a lot of money for analysts and data scientists. So we would say, like, okay, that person is three grand a year, mm-hmm. and then the viewers are free. That was a pricing model that we had at one point. That's no longer how we do it. And some of the feedback we got was like, okay, three grand for a data scientist, no problem. But my product manager, you know, that person's going to do some queries now and then. I really want them to have access to mode. But I just I don't want to pay the full amount. Can we negotiate like a half license or something like that? And so we ended up doing a lot of these kind of bespoke deals where we were valuing people at like half a license or a quarter of a license or whatever based on like their expected usage. And that was really heavy. It introduced way more friction than it reduced. Lots of skews, lots of like negotiation. Oh, we were not even thinking about skews yeah. yet. You know, this is before like structuring things into Salesforce and getting. This is like really, really early days. But yes, every contract was. Totally different. Right. It was a lot to maintain. It was really annoying. And we also just didn't want to go to the effort to build a separate experience for a viewer and uh, and a creator, because that was going to be a product lift that prevented us from going and doing something else that's valuable, like adding more visualizations or you know building out R and Python functionality, which we didn't have at the time. We wanted to go do those things that would deliver core product value, rather than like you know building out features that just supported our business model. And I think that you know that's the thing that we did really well is we had this bottoms up notion from the beginning. We can talk more about that too because I think it's especially relevant to just being enterprise ready in general. But our goal was first and foremost, let's get to the most valuable product and let's deliver that in a way that makes sense for people without handicapping ourselves or limiting ourselves from some sort of future pricing model or, or whatever we might want to do. And only once we've really started to figure out how people experience the value of mode should we be hardening that into a system. Yeah, agreed. The other challenge that we had with that particular pricing model was that three grand was a lot. So you think about the SQL tutorial and what that did for us. You know, We had these fans who had come to us through some other avenue 
or we had someone who, let's say, you know, works at company A and then goes to company B and wants to adopt mode, three grand is a lot to ask your boss for, right? Even if you had a great experience learning SQL on mode, you come in as like a junior analyst and you say, hey, I really would like to use this thing at work, but it costs three grand a year. Most people are too timid for that. Mm. They don't want to do it. They'll just you know, take whatever's handed to them by the company. And so that was something that we wanted to solve for in our next model. Cool. And so can you share kind of like anything else you've learned in terms of what has been successful? Are there things you're thinking about like enhancing the freemium? I mean, like, has it done what you wanted it to do and help reduce your user acquisition costs, et cetera? It cut user acquisition costs in half essentially the next day. Wow. It did it in a different way than you might expect. So you know, Yammer had a freemium model and a gigantic pool of companies that were using the product for free to draw from. And a lot of what I did personally at Yammer was ranking companies that were using the free product and surfacing them as leads to our sales team. At Mode, it works a little bit differently. I think just by virtue of the type of product that it is, first of all, there's a bigger hurdle to adopting it. At Yammer, you could just sign up. At Mode, you have to connect a database. And so that immediately places a barrier that we can get over but we just don't get over it at the same volume that Yammer had. So right off the bat, it's a slightly different function for what freemium does. At the same time, you know, we have an audience, analysts and data scientists, who really don't want to be sold to. And we, and we try very hard not to be like salesy in that traditional sense. We don't want folks to feel like we're coming on too strong. This is something that we've also really had to reconcile in, in a more enterprise world, where sometimes that's a little bit necessary and can be helpful, in fact, and, and people expect it and want it. But for practitioners, that, that end-of-the-line data scientist, the authentic approach has proven to be better for us most of the time. You know, Previously, anyone who signed up for Mode in any capacity, we were sending our sales team after. We were saying, like, okay, great, like you're interested in Mode, you know, we want to hold your hand, make sure that you have a good experience, etc. And, and actually, folks didn't really want that. Um, what this has done is allowed people who just want to kick the tires to go do that, and it focuses our sales team only on the folks who are really serious about mode. And just having that focus is so much more efficient than having you know salespeople to reach out to every single person who does anything related to mode ever. Where if you're a salesperson now at mode, rather than like spending your time trying to talk to and get on the phone, lots of folks who are then going to no-show or who aren't really that serious about it, you can go back and contact someone who last saw Mode a year and a half ago, the product's changed a ton, You know, we have a note in our CRM that says they were interested in a specific feature, now Mode has that feature. That's a way better conversation. And so that sort of thing has really allowed us to gain the efficiency that we were looking for when we conceived of the notion of freemium at all. Yeah, it's interesting. I really like the idea. Like, it kind of allows your customers to raise their hand when they're actually really interested, and so you're not bothering the folks that like are going to kind of waste your time, right? Like, you know, you're not chasing the the five percent that are like, you know, maybe you can get them to convert. It's like you're chasing the ninety five percent that are really interested, and then you're letting that other demand build up. Yeah, and you know, Mode has been driven almost exclusively by inbound to date. We now do relatively targeted outbound outreach. That's been somewhat successful in part because folks have had some kind of exposure to mode. Maybe you know we reach out to a head of data somewhere who has been subscribing to our email list for a while. We have a list that feels authentic. You know we're we're really careful about making sure that we have only a few articles. They're all like really tight to mode's brand in terms of like just things that analytical people will want to read. 
or you know, people who've used the free product in some capacity in the past, people who've done the tutorial, like that type of stuff, because we've done it mostly in a way that's not too in your face, generates good brand value for us so that now when we do that outreach, we're able to get good conversations. People are willing to take calls from us because they say like, okay, I've had good experiences, I've gotten good content from Moda in the past. Yeah, I love that. You know, that that's a really kind of interesting way to think about how to use data from like a pricing perspective and from like a feature selection perspective. And one of the things, you know, we kind of talked about before this was a little bit of like the idea of institutional knowledge. And so I would love for you to kind of dive into how you think folks can use data to, to drive institutional knowledge. Yes, this is one of my favorite things about data analysis. So we all know that data is useful in making discrete decisions. You show up to a meeting, you got a decision to be made, you got the data, you make the decision and you move on. That's wonderful. Every time. You just have all the perfect data, and you're just ready, it's like black that's, and white, just easy. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> the dream. In all seriousness though, showing up with data does change the tenor of a conversation. It's not the be-all, end-all. And I would certainly say that anything valuable that we found quantitatively at Mode, at Yammer, the, the things we found to be true quantitatively, we validated with research. Which actually, I'll give you an example of this. So, Yammer, for anyone who isn't familiar, Yammer is very similar to Facebook uh, in that it is a platform for folks to post messages. There are threads, right? It's not quite like Slack. Slack is chat, where it's kind of a stream of stuff. Yammer was built entirely around a notion of threaded conversations like Facebook, where you have a, a main post and then you have a bunch of replies to it. Users of Yammer, so, so each company gets its own Yammer network. And so what it is is essentially like a Facebook that is confined just to you and the other people who are at your company. Not to be confused with Facebook's product, Facebook for work. That's right. That came much <laughs> that came later. Much later, yeah. Yeah, that that wasn't introduced until after Yammer was acquired by Microsoft. Yeah. So one of the most impactful features from a metrics perspective that Yammer ever produced, it was really simple and it was based on this idea that new users to the product would probably retain better if they had some kind of positive interaction in their first experience. Seems like common sense. So an enterprising PM had this notion of putting a little black bar at the bottom of every new user's photo. It's a black bar, white text that says new. And anyone who has heard me talk, I talk about this in mode onboarding all the time. Like This is one of the, my favorite examples of anything because it's so simple but so impactful and teaches a really important lesson. So this feature had exactly the intended result, which is to say that when new users showed up, this banner was placed on their photos, and it made existing users more likely to interact with those people, even just to say welcome. You see someone's photo, it says new on it, hey, welcome. Yeah. This is what Yammer's about. What that did for Yammer, it's, it was bananas. The, the new user retention had whole percentage point increases, which you know you spend enough time analyzing A/B tests to understand. Like a several percentage point sustained increase in a metric is a really, really, really big deal. You don't come across those too often, and it tells us this obvious thing, which is we should keep that. That's a good feature, and that's I think where most people's idea of data analysis ends. Is oh, okay, well we did the analysis and this thing was great, but what this really does is it tells us that we have an opportunity now. 
we now know of a place where we can create really big leverage for the business. That interaction that folks have, like anything we can do to get existing users to interact with the new ones when they join is probably going to be good. And so what you have then is a bunch of PMs who learn this information and then start coming up with other features that might do the same thing, some of which ended up being successful as well. But it doesn't stop there. In an organization that's really effective at using data or at disseminating this type of information, you're sharing that with your customer success team. So a customer success manager says, okay, they go to a customer that just bought Yammer and they say, hey, you're rolling this out. The most critical thing for you to do, administrator or champion, the most critical thing for you to do is to make sure that you interact personally with as many new users as you can because that's what's going to get them to stick around. That's what's going to make this successful. And you can use it everywhere. You can use it in marketing materials. You can have automated emails that help surface new users and, and allow you to, like, I join and, and it should show me, oh, there's all of these people who are in your team already. Go have conversations with them. Like, there's so many implications for what you can do here to move the needle for the company that the most valuable thing really is not just the learning initially, it's this institutional knowledge that's created that informs everyone's jobs. And that, when I talk about the value of data, that's why I feel so strongly about this type of work instead of just dashboarding, because if you are able to unlock one of those insights, one of those things that feels transformative for the business, it's not just useful for you this one time, it's useful for everybody. It changes the way everyone does their jobs, and that is so impactful. And so like, how would you come about the thesis that, like, okay, if a new user has a positive first experience or maybe just did you did you look at the data and sort of like pull out there was oh there's some difference between users who get ten messages within the first hour versus users who get zero messages for the first day or like how did you kind of come about the you know this thesis or was it have the thesis and then look for the data to support it? The best part is I don't remember. I mean, it's the best and the worst part. The reason it's the best part is that it was a long time ago and. Honestly, I don't remember that many details from the day-to-day work that I did at Yammer. You sure. know, we're, like we're talking about seven, eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. But I do remember that crystal clear, right? That's what makes it the best part is that like we got to this thing and it was like, oh wow, this is big. Like Facebook had their, I think it was like you know, as long as you connect with seven friends in ten days, then you'll be a sticky Facebook user. Like finding these nuggets of information to to point everyone at. It's yeah. It, I guess my question is like, if I'm a product person, you know, or at a company and I'm looking to find these kind of core insights like should I be trying to come up with a thesis first and then look for the data to support it or should I be look trying to look at the data and find things that I think like I can then test more with more detail I think you always want to approach the data with some kind of hypothesis okay part of that is my my background in economics you know, I believe that the analysis should be done to support some type of thesis. Usually, if you just like dive into the big data lake and hope that something interesting comes out, you're unlikely to find something. Mm-hmm. It's much better, from what I've seen, when directed by smart hypotheses developed by smart people. Okay, because if you just go into the data, you're going to find something, but it might just be like noise, realistically. And then if you just if you have a thesis and you're trying to find data that will either prove or disprove it, you're going to come up with a one or the other. So. This points to something really interesting. So there are products like Outlier AI, for example, that will take a bunch of events and point out to you the outliers. That's why it's called Outlier. I think this is one of the best places for AI in the business intelligence world. And this is where we're going to see AI take over from BI companies uh, in a big way over time. Dashboards are 
problem surfacing tools. But they're like the type of problem surfacing tool that you have to go check yourself and like mm. find the problem. And what Outlier does is it effectively takes the things you would put on a dashboard and some things that you might not think to put on a dashboard and surfaces the anomalies to you. Mm-hmm. There are things that current technology will miss, like really gradual degradations. It's not something that Outlier is going to catch too easily just because of the nature. I could be wrong. Maybe the product has evolved to do that since I first saw it in, in the early days. But in general, in anomaly detection, it's tough to catch a gradual degradation in something. But spikes certainly like kind of like how I put on some pounds over the last, you know, like fifteen years. Yeah, it's not it's not going to catch the creep, but it will catch the spike. You know, if you just do like a crash juice cleanse, you know, Outlier yeah. will catch it for you. Perfect. So Outlier is taking on those sorts of cases where previously you might just have to look at a dashboard all the time. Now, you know, or at least over time, products like Outlier will just push information to you and show you what to look at. But that's still reactive. It is going to take some sort of proactive thinking about okay, here's a place where I think we can get some more value. The reality is that like companies have so much data that it would be impossible to just get in and randomly start doing things and find value. You've got to have some kind of direction. Like at the very least, here's this, the portion of our data that would be valuable. At the very least, so I might even say because of that, it's impossible to just go in. Randomly, like everyone's got some kind of hypothesis, even if it's just, I think there's something in our billing data. Yeah. So it's not like you're just combing around looking at data, looking at stuff. You're like, you, you generally are forming a thesis as you're looking at user data. You're like, well, what makes people, it's, or questions. It's like, you know, you start to ask questions and then you yeah. start to dive in deeper. Or like, you know, take this freemium example. I mean, we started with a thing that we wanted to work on. You know, we got, to the end of the year, we had a board meeting and said one of the things that we really want to do is reduce our acquisition costs so that we can scale more efficiently. And then we came up with ideas to do that. Usually you've got some kind of thing that you want to achieve that motivates the question and you know determines your initial hypotheses, right? You get down, you think about it with the people who are closest to the business, and then you start doing analysis. Yeah, that makes sense. The consumer world is definitely filled with folks who are looking at data and spending time analyzing this. And I think it probably often goes underutilized at enterprise software startups, particularly in the early days, right? Because you know, most enterprise software companies probably don't have a data scientist on staff and they're probably not spending that much time looking at the data. But trying to find some areas that you can point to to make sure you're staying data-driven. And a lot of the things you're talking about, like, Everybody should have. Everyone should have like these standard metrics around customer acquisition cost and you know average lifetime value and these things that there's like I think there's a fairly well understood insight around. But the that information is sort of like what you're going to share with investors. It's not necessarily what's going to drive your business, right? Those metrics are sort of uh, help you benchmark, but they don't help you. You know, get more usage and get higher conversion rates. And so, I think thinking through this, and first you have to capture the data. Second, you have to like put it somewhere you can actually analyze it a bit, and then have a thesis or two of things you want to improve. Areas, I mean, benchmarking can kind of show you areas where you might be weak and where you might be strong. So you can use those to find opportunities. But yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a there's not that much discussion around it, right? Like this is a thing that people talk about, like how to be super data driven early on in enterprise software. So, this is a thing. I agree that 
hasn't been talked about really broadly. My co-founder Ben just just went on a little mini tour giving a presentation along with Segment. So Segment put together a, a tour of accelerators to talk about how data can be effective and powerful at really early companies. And, uh, and my co-founder Ben went along it and talked about how to do some of that more directed analysis that's not just like counting up your revenue or like the basic stuff that you would pitch to investors. Now, you need to do the investor stuff too, and there are ways that you can do that really effectively that are, are different from what I think of as like you know sort of core metrics dashboarding. Um, and in fact, I think that's necessary in order to be compelling as a business to investors. Very few businesses, just like for like software as a service, you know, there's a standard sets of, of software as a service metrics, like LTV over CAC, you know, obviously annual recurring revenue. Like there, there are just things that everyone is going to present. Quick ratios, things like that. You have to calculate that. Very few businesses will stand out with those metrics. And so, you know, if you are Slack and you're going to be off the charts on all of those metrics, that's great. Most of us aren't Slack. Most of us aren't Slack. So, what do you do? Well, you need to be like a little bit more thorough in finding out where the real key strengths of your company are. And, and that looks kind of similar to developing a hypothesis about a problem and researching into it and figuring out if your hypothesis is correct. Yeah, that's great. Kind of moving you know, away from some of the data stuff and talking a little bit more about mode again and sort of you know, your progress as like an enterprise software company, right? And so you know, I, th- I think you've kind of done this bottom-up motion most of your time. You didn't really start off going after the largest enterprises, but now you're doing some bigger deals, uh, and you've always had some core features. I know you've always, like we've talked about in the past, just like one-on-one about how focused you are on security and you know how code reviews and external audits, and those are all part of your processes. But would love to just kind of get your perspective on on that Emotion up and sort of how you think about some of those enterprise ready features within the perspective of mode? Yes. So there are certain things that we felt were fundamental and necessary for us to do right from day one. Security has always been a super important thing for us. So, in order for mode to be effective, our customers need to feel comfortable putting sensitive data into it. That's just a necessity. Now, this is something that all businesses balance with the desire to move quickly. In some cases, these things aren't at odds. So if our goal and mode is to sign a bunch of customers as quickly as possible and having great security reduces that friction, then that's wonderful. And that was really the impetus at some point when we got SOC 2 compliant. That was really what drove it, is we had a bunch of customers who were saying, you know, we'd really feel more comfortable if there was some external auditor here to like rubber stamp this and say, yes, mode actually does the things that they say they do. Because the things you say are great. We've since had some of our larger customers bring in independent auditors to validate that we do what we say, and those have all gone really well because this has already always been a priority for us. But that sort of thing certainly can be, depending on your business, an accelerator for you. Now, there are certain things that sometimes feel like a decelerator. So I'll give you an example. When people write into mode customer support, usually it's because they found a bug or they've got some issue with a, um, with a report that they've built. And our support team will say, hey, you know, I can help you out. Just give me the report token. It's a little piece you can find at the end of the URL in your mode report. So you give that to our support team, and our support team goes in and, and looks up some information about your report. 
we had this choice to make where we could have said that our support team can just look at your report as though they belong to your company. We have competitors who do that. We decided that this wasn't an acceptable security trade-off. Right? The information that you produce is yours, and only yours. And we probably shouldn't be able to see that dashboard that you've created unless you show it to us actively. And you should know that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. It makes it harder for our support team to do their jobs. It'd certainly be easier if they could just look at your report and figure out what's wrong with it. Instead, they have to go off of metadata, information about when you created it, how many lines of code it is, how big the results set it produces. And that kind of stuff usually is enough to get the job done. It's just harder. Sure. And we take the harder path because we think it's more secure for our customers. That's important to us. I mean, it's a, the principle of least access, right? So if they don't need all that data to do that job, like, then why give it to them, right? Like you should be able to do it with the most limited set of data. And if metadata gets you there, then that's the that's the right level of access. You know, if you need to escalate further and further, the customer can make that decision or not. Mm-hmm. So at some point, we made the decision to become HIPAA compliant. We didn't do it on day one because it wasn't the fastest thing to do. We did it when it became an accelerant for the business. Like There are lots of trade-offs in the security world, as there are in, in the general enterprise readiness world, where as a CEO, I'm constantly evaluating what will this really unlock for us. So starting from this bottoms-up place, a lot of the reason that we started as a bottoms-up company, to be quite frank, is that's what we knew. A lot of Mode's early employees had come from Yammer. That was the way that Yammer did it. And we liked the idea of building a product where we focused first and foremost on the value before we focused on compliance, logs, etc. Now, what's happened is, as we've delivered that value, we've gotten a pull from our customers who say like, hey, we started with this in our analytics and data science teams, now it's everywhere. I mean, we have companies with many thousands of active users on mode, like in a given day. Wow. So... We need to help them administer that. They need to make sure that people are seeing the correct stuff and not the incorrect stuff. And so we need to develop systems to help do that, and we've done our best to keep up with that. It's become a much greater focus for us recently, where we've realized not only do these businesses need it, but these are the businesses where mode is often most successful. Places that have put a real investment in understanding their business through data, that's a natural fit for mode. So we should be doing our best to make them as successful as possible. Like we have customers today who say we love mode, we want to roll it out really broadly. We need you to give us this particular thing. And and there's a lot of stuff that we're working through that fits in the general sort of enterprise readiness bucket. Like permissions is an example. Sure. Right? Today it's possible to do lots of things with permissions in mode, but if you've got like a three-tiered system where you have, you know, very confidential, medium confidential, and not super confidential data, and that's all stored in your Active Directory, and you you've got some real specific rules around who can see which things, it's managed somewhere outside of mode. That's a thing that we either need to work with you very closely on to create some kind of custom stuff to interact with our API, or we need to maybe build out some additional product features for. And there's a variety of different scenarios like this where we're integrating into some company's system in a way that might require a little bit of extra work from us that we need to do. Yeah, I mean, one of the core things you know, across the board is just remembering that 
your product is not like in its silo, right? It's used as part of a full like pipeline or suite of like other tools and some information like should be managed other places and brought into your your application. And so I think like just taking that perspective and making sure that there's like everyone on your team like understands that that like your tool is important but there's like a whole other suite of tools that all need to work together for this company to get stuff done and you have to focus on integrating those well. So that's uh sounds like that's kind of where you're coming from from this single sign-on and role-based access control concept is it has to integrate and pull in from other places. So yeah, and as that relates to building a bottoms-up business, the nice thing about bottoms-up businesses is you know you're solving the hardest problem first. When you go to IT departments and you ask folks what the hardest problem is, in a lot of cases, it's just getting people to adopt software. There's tons of stuff that just sits on people's laptops, you know, that they never use. Or if you read like Challenger Sale, for example, like you know, any any enterprise CEO should be reading that book. Agreed, it's really great. You read Challenger Sale. What's the number one thing that drives sales of software? Well, it's that you have a lot of support from the users of the software. So like the power of a bottoms-up business model is real, and then you need to be pragmatic about how you approach the enterprise readiness aspect of it, which things you do in which order. And for us, you know, it just happened that security was something that we did before enterprise readiness was even on the radar at all, because it was so critical and fundamental to our business. But there are still elements of it. So so we have designed our SOC 2 controls in such a way that there will be an on-ramp to future things in the same way that like we are, you know, GDPR compliant, which is giving us a good on-ramp to California's similar privacy regulations that are going to go into effect next year. We try to have an eye toward the next thing. Like like ISO, right? So ISO a little bit more strict than SOC in terms of how you design your controls, right? There are specific controls for ISO where SOC you can design your own controls around certain parameters. We're trying to design toward ISO anyway, even though it's not necessary for our business. Most of our customers and prospects today are totally happy knowing that we've been audited by a third party and that we have real like organized controls that we've maintained over a long period of time. You know, the compliance certifications I think are always really interesting. So for ISO 27000, it's a great standard to look into. A lot of it's not that relevant to software companies. There's like stuff about loading docs and things you generally aren't going to have to worry about. But it's a very strong standard. And I always say the most important piece is if you're just aware of it, it's basically the entire playbook that every CISO is going to be asking you about. So if you want to be able to have a conversation with the folks that are evaluating the security of your product, like read the ISO spec, understand the requirements, and then you know put as much of it into play as you can, and then just be able to speak to it, and that way you're not kind of caught without knowing what the people are talking about. You can just have the conversation, and, and they can make trade offs, and you say, hey, like yeah, we at some point in our company's history we didn't have you know key cards at every door, like now we do. And that's just part of that spec. And so you can, but you know, if you tell somebody that, hey, we're a 20 person company and we just have locks in the door and everybody has a key, they might be okay with it. Yeah. Administering some of that stuff at a really small company scale can be a lot of overhead. Right. It's probably not worth it. But having, like, knowing what it is and being able to talk to it and say, like, why you're not doing it and justify it, I think is really important, right? Be, like, that's my perspective. It's like, have an opinion, have a perspective, and then be able to talk. 
and like a rational, logical person with the other people on the other end and understand that like they're trying to do their job, which is in order to be ISO 27,000 compliant, you have to work with like other ISO 27,000 compliant companies. It's kind of this network effect in itself. And so it's like they're making some exceptions, but they want to know that you have a roadmap to, to getting there as well. Yes, I agree with that. There are really two aspects of security. There is a there's an actual security and a perception of security aspect. Sure. You don't actually need to be audited. Technically, you don't need to be audited in order to be secure. 100% agree. It certainly helps, and we do find value in it from the perspective of enhancing our own controls and our own protocols of the company. So I won't pretend that we got absolutely everything right at first. And we have external pen testers to whom we give our source code, and we say, like, just go nuts, like really try to find all the holes. Every new feature that we introduce, things get tested over time, especially anything that introduces new security service area is going to get pen tested before we even roll beta customers onto it, before we even put our own company data onto it, we're getting that stuff pen tested. Yeah, like and you said kind of this white box model where you're giving people access to source code and everything else too. So which is Yeah. 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 Have at it with the best you can do. You know, we'll give you everything and see if you can break into it. And I think that's really valuable. So we've gotten tons of benefit from that. We also do a bug bounty program. Yep. Where we've had some success. The bug bounty program is a thing that takes a lot of resources to administer properly because there's also a lot of garbage that comes through there. But we feel that's an important thing for us to do in order to maintain a certain level of security. Yeah. And, and to your point, though, like my problem with some of these certifications is sometimes they're like a point in time checkbox, right? And I often think that folks are a little bit, um, like especially with like the vendor security questionnaires, and and I think that that's a it's a really interesting area where folks are just a little bit like rose colored in terms of how they fill those out and the perspective that they're giving. So I don't know. I think these security compliances have value. I just don't think that they're the be all end all of security. Right, and and that's what I'm saying. Also, you do the compliance work primarily. To reduce friction in sales processes, right? It's like getting a college degree to prove that you've, you know, you can do the work. That's right. Or in my case, going to Facebook or wherever. Sure, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere else to get that seal of approval. But and people often use like their biggest customers, and they'll be like, "Oh, well, this bank uses us, so like if they use us, they've done a lot of diligence, and they'll try to leverage that as an example of like, so if they use us, like you should be able to use us too." Mm-hmm. There's also. Truthfully, just a just a time and market thing that really helps. I mean, companies that probably would not have talked to us three years ago will talk to us now because we have enough of a reputation in the market that it seems legit, it seems credible. And you think about this too. So one of the things that comes up all the time is, should we be building an on-prem product? So Mode today can connect to databases that live in pretty much whatever environment you've got, but our core product is a multi-tenant SaaS product. So, you know, everyone is logging into the same version of mode. Sure. And there's been this constant tension of, well, so probably we're not going to get into a bank to run their core risk models. Right. Because those are extremely risk-averse organizations and that's an extremely risk-averse thing that that we're talking about. But the level of comfort that folks have with this model continues to grow over time. So, you know, there has always been this question of should we be building an on-prem product right now because it will open up some new set of customers that today are not comfortable with what we do? 
or should we be focusing more on core product value and waiting for one, that to become an easier thing to do, or two, those companies to become more comfortable with the model that we have, etc. And this this is one of the sort of core debates that we have at Mode every once in a while. And what we've kind of come down on for this is there are things that we can do that are somewhat in between the two that we will continue to do to make folks more comfortable, reduce security surface area, whatever it is. But the business trade-off for us, it would be so costly to re-engineer our product in that way. First of all, we couldn't have built a bottoms-up product had we done that. Being multi-tenant SaaS is part of what made Mode easy to adopt in the early days and what got us a bunch of early customers and, and the ability to continually iterate and prove out that value. So we would not be where we are today had we started with an on-prem product. So now it's really a question of do we bridge that gap? And it's a constant trade-off. We, th- we think about it regularly and we always come down in the same place, which is we see the market changing where people are comfortable with mode as a company more and more. The, the example that I always use is Salesforce. I love Salesforce here. People put incredibly sensitive information into Salesforce. And you know they have a, an established brand. People feel like it's comfortable. They have a bunch of security certifications, of course, but really more than anything, they've just been there for a long time doing the same thing. Mode and Salesforce are not the same, of course, but maybe they can be at some point. And the Salesforce example serves as a proof point that when there is enough pull from a business arm, but the people who adopt Salesforce, who drive that decision, are sales teams, sales operations. It's those kinds of folks. Those folks have such a pull and so much influence over how the CISOs and IT are going to react that you know if they have to have Salesforce in order to drive the business forward, the security departments will find a way to make it work. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, my perspective, I obviously have a lot to say on this part. Of course, is yeah, I mean, but basically, you're right in some regards in that. I think there will always be some number of vendors who are available as as true SaaS, right? And you know, in a, at the very base is going to be at least AWS and Google and Microsoft, these sort of infrastructures as service companies. And then there's probably going to be a handful of other folks like Salesforce and Slack and Box and some of these other folks that end up becoming infrastructure esque. But then there's a whole slew of thousands and tens of thousands of other application vendors. And you know, our perspective here is that. And it's it's a challenge because I think you started the company like you know five or six years ago, and so now most companies are starting are architecting from the very beginning with Kubernetes at the core, and this is just making applications like inherently more portable, and you're seeing more of like uh, open source sort of like core components, like you know it's not just Spanner, it's CockroachDB, and it's all these databases that are cloud native and designed to run on Kubernetes, and so we see it just as like you would have to re-architect, but like the next companies that are coming out are just like they're starting from day one with like this sort of portability in hand. And compared to the old world of on-prem, it's just the software is so much easier to run if you're distributing it to your customer and they're running it in their own Kubernetes cluster. You're just like getting this like, you know order of magnitude more reliability and less uh, involvement and scales better. And so, you know, we think the world will just blend these two together and. You know, the funny thing about Salesforce, I always laugh about, is uh, yeah, you know, they're in this great multi-tenant thing. They kind of created the cloud and SaaS, but they gave a talk last year at uh, at GitHub Universe about how amazing they are 
at administering GitHub Enterprise. So like that's kind of weird, right? Salesforce, the SaaS company, doesn't use github.com internally. They use GitHub Enterprise, which they host on-prem. So to me, if SaaS was like this obvious be-all, end-all, well then, why would Salesforce use an on-prem product? This doesn't make that much sense to me. So I think this is where I, my perspective is always like, you know, I think Mark Benioff and Aaron Levy and these folks have always painted the world as black and white. And it's like, well, it's really shades of gray, right? And there's some things, some data that, you know, some areas, some customers, some companies, where it's a much more complex sort of it depends, it depends answer rather than like yes or no. And for a business at any point in time, it's a yes or no question, right? So like, I think you've made the right choice to this point. Like, hey, you need to get get out there. It wasn't obvious five years ago that like this new architecture would enable us eventually. But I think over time, like our perspective is, it'll just blend, and you won't even like some customers will be running it on prem, and you they won't even you won't really even care or know. That all sounds right to me. I think your point about the next generation of companies that are built in the era of Kubernetes is is a good point. And I think we've seen several sort of uh, cutoff points. You know, Yammer was founded before public cloud was super popular. Right. If Yammer were started today, it probably would be. In AWS or GCP or Azure, I mean Azure, right? Because it's owned by Microsoft. But you know, <laughs> um, but migrating Yammer to Azure was a challenge, and actually was not completed while I was there. I'm assuming it got completed at some point. Oh wow, yeah. Um, but but it wasn't completed while I was at while I was at Yammer after the acquisition. So I think actually the GDPR and and other sort of modern privacy regulations, which by the way to me make a ton of sense, and I think are the right way to think about privacy. Agreed. GDPR, I mean. To be determined exactly how it gets enforced, especially on companies like Mode. You know, we're going to see the Googles and Facebooks, of course, first, but but then eventually there will be some sort of enforcement for everybody. Sure. Companies born in the post GDPR era will have a lot less work to do to retrofit their systems to make that work. You just build with that type of privacy requirement from the beginning. And so there will be things like this in the future. Probably six years from now, there will be a thing that no one sees, that no one architected for, where we're all going to have to go back and retrofit everything. That's just what happens. Right. But like you said, Mode makes these decisions today, and, and what we have is a set of customers, some of whom want us to deploy our product on-prem. And we could do it. We could do it. It would just take a huge amount of resources. And the reality is that what those folks want more in most cases is some additional type of value to their business. The thing people clamor for is more value to the business. And for Mode the Company, yes, we have excluded ourselves from some portion of the market today by not being deployable on-prem or behind your own VPC. Right. That's what we've done. It's a trade-off that we made deliberately in order to get to a better product faster, in order to grow faster among the audience that we can't reach. It's been working reasonably well for us. And you know, that's you're, how we'll continue to make that decision. And eventually, you're going like I'm, you're already probably fully automated in terms of DevOps and how you guys deploy and using CI and CD. And so you're doing a lot of the things that are cloud native. You probably just don't yet have the like you know pure Kubernetes underlying infrastructure. And so like eventually you will. Like, that's what happens. Like you'll have you move services after service on there. I mean, it becomes the architecture for the next twenty years anyway. So like you're going to get there. And then at some point you'll be like, we could just ship this right. And so that the it goes from being this huge lift. To being this like, oh well, we could just do that if we want to for a handful of customers, and if we want to scale it out, then you come to replicate it. <laughs> okay, 
Derek, so to wrap this up, let's just do a, a quick pitch of mode. Like, how do you talk about this? Like, what's the you know two, five minute, ten minute, however long you want to talk for? How do you pitch this to folks? So you already got this pitch a little bit earlier in this conversation. It's obviously different if I'm talking to an analyst or a data scientist versus someone who's not super familiar. So one thing about mode is for analysts and data scientists, they've always sort of gotten it. Like the practitioners, they understand why mode is going to make them faster at answering questions. And for a lot of them, they feel like they're kind of stuck in this like model building hell or they're configuring a system. All their time is spent configuring a system for other people to do really simplistic analysis. And then, you know, the real meaty questions that they'd rather be answering, they feel like they don't have time for or they're bogged down by one-off requests. Like That's the sort of thing that they just get. And so my pitch to them is very different, and it's, and it's based around that. It's like, hey, Mode kind of does all of your workflow stuff that you need to do. SQL, Python, R, ties it all together really cleanly and allows you to get that stuff out to the business quickly so that you can really spend most of your time on the high-value projects. You can build the things that those folks need, allow them to then self-serve, and then you can spend your time on answering the things that are going to move the business forward. And that's enough for most analysts or data scientists. The way that I talk about this with people who aren't practitioners, who aren't familiar, is I set it up more in terms of the types of of questions that your business needs to answer. And I talk about, like I said earlier, this notion of dashboarding really being about better administering business as usual, and the real value to your business is going to come from these insights that are hidden, like the Yammer example that I gave about that new user badge, that's the sort of thing that's going to make step changes in your business, that's going to help everyone at your business become better at their jobs, and it's going to actually change metrics in a meaningful way. That's what companies want to do. And in order to do that, you need to take smart people, your analysts, your data scientists, not bog them down in like building dashboard after dashboard, but give them an opportunity to go and test their hypotheses or test hypotheses that you work on with them as a product manager, as a CEO, whoever you are. Work on those hypotheses, get as many turns in answering as many of those as possible because that's what's going to help you find the insights that are going to get your business to the next level. And what mode does is mode makes it easier for those folks to answer questions quickly and get as many turns as possible. Mode triples the number of cycles that your analysts and data scientists can get through, which means it triples your chances at finding that key business insight that's going to take you to the next level. Perfect. Derek, thank you so much. It was awesome having you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Grant. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.